Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Before we start today's episode, today's topic is a serious one, but today is also our last chance to let everybody know that we have a live streaming event coming up on March 10th, 2022. So if you're listening to this episode on the day that we released it, that's tomorrow. It's happening very soon. That's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Several folks, when we have posted about this on social media, have said things like, that's 1 a.m. my time, so I can't come. Well, I have good news, which is that the stream is available for 72 hours after the show. So if you are in some time zone that is very inconvenient for the times that we've just said. It's okay. Uh, Normally, when we have a live show, that live show becomes an episode of the podcast. That's not going to be the case this time. Uh, This is a little bit different in terms of uh, the, the way our live shows normally go. Rather than it just being us doing something that we could also have done in the studio, it's a little more interactive thing. So not as conducive to going into our feed with everything else. Yeah. Uh, so it, if you want to hear us talk about some feuds and have some votes with audience interaction, this is the thing. But like we said, if you miss out on a ticket, you won't get to hear this one. Yeah. Yeah. So loopedlive.com. That's where you can go to buy tickets. We also have the link to the ticket page pinned up at the top of our Facebook and our Twitter 
We are very excited about it. Again, that's on Thursday, March 10th, 2022, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And now, on to the actual episode. One topic that we have gotten many, many, many requests for over the years is the Holodomor. Some folks have even been persistent enough to write in and request this topic more than one time. The Holodomor is the name that was coined in the 1980s to describe a famine that struck Ukraine in the early 1930s. The name comes from Ukrainian words that roughly translate to death by hunger. And while there were famines and food shortages that were taking place in other parts of the Soviet Union at the same time, Soviet policies toward Ukraine specifically made the situation there a whole lot worse. And they were part of an intentional effort that was spearheaded by Joseph Stalin to destroy Ukrainian culture and identity. This is also obviously part of the historical context for Russia's invasion of Ukraine that started on February 24th of this year. It is also really, truly horrifying. So listening to it in light of those events, which are ongoing, that may make it seem even more horrifying. So take care of yourself while you're listening. So to give a little bit of background, Russia and Ukraine share a lot of overlapping history, going all the way back to the establishment of Kievan Rus in the late 9th century. Kievan Rus was the first Eastern Slavic state, and today Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia all trace their origins and cultural identity back to it. But over the centuries, the nations, peoples, and ethnic groups that would form these countries as we know them today They went through very different trajectories. What's now Ukraine was repeatedly divided up and assigned to other nations and empires, including Poland, Lithuania, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Aside from its westernmost regions, most of Ukraine became part of the Russian Empire in 1793. But regardless of which nation or empire they were considered to be living in, Ukrainians had their own ethnic and cultural identity. By the middle of the 19th century, most of what's now Ukraine had come under Russian control. But by that point, Ukrainian had also evolved as its own standardized language. Literature written in Ukrainian reflected Ukrainians' own cultural and ethnic identities. Imperial Russia eventually started to see this developing sense of language and cultural consciousness as a threat, And in the late 19th century, Russian officials started banning the teaching of Ukrainian and removing Ukrainian books from schools. The Russian imperial government was overthrown in a series of revolutions in 1917. The Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, took control, changing their name to the Russian Communist Party of Bolsheviks in 1918. As all of this was happening, Ukraine established a provisional government and declared its independence— and for about the next four years, fought to keep that independence. This involved political, diplomatic, and military efforts against other nations and against counter-revolutionary forces within its own borders. This lasted until 1922, when Ukraine became the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That same year, parts of the Soviet Union faced a famine, This famine was brought on by the political instability and warfare of the previous few years, and it was made worse by a drought. At first, Soviet leaders refused international aid, but eventually a campaign for famine relief was underway in Soviet Russia, 
This included suspending food taxes. But Ukraine was really facing the same conditions, especially in its southern regions. Not only was Ukraine left out of aid programs and other relief until late 1922, but it was also expected to contribute food to Russia, including contributing food from the southern regions that had been most stricken by the same famine. The Communist Party had also instituted a system of war communism, which involved nationalizing industries and forcibly requisitioning surplus grain and other food. This affected the Soviet Union as a whole, but it was particularly disruptive in Ukraine, where about 80% of the population were farmers. Growing grain was a central part of the Ukrainian economy and identity. Ukraine is nicknamed the breadbasket of Europe, and its flag represents a blue sky over a yellow field of wheat. Under war communism, Ukraine was no longer able to sell its surplus grain, and as a consequence, its economy collapsed. Unrest was widespread, and agricultural productivity dropped since people didn't want to spend their time growing surplus grain that would just be requisitioned with no compensation. Lenin introduced a new economic policy in 1921 that addressed some of this, but there was still a lot of anti-Soviet and anti-communist sentiment. One step that was taken to try to reverse that sentiment was a policy of indigenization, Russia was by far the largest of the Soviet republics, and Russians were by far the largest ethnic group. But the Soviet Union was not at all monolithic, nor were the Soviet republics that comprised it. This indigenization policy encouraged people of different national identities and ethnic groups to really pursue and develop their own cultures while still being part of the Soviet Union. In Ukraine, this led to a huge cultural flourishing involving literature, art, music, and language. Newly opened schools taught courses in Ukrainian, with Russian treated more like an elective class. The Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church became independent from the Russian Orthodox Church, and its membership and clergy both grew rapidly. The idea had been that encouraging this kind of diversity and national identity would appease various ethnic groups and it would increase their support for the Soviet regime. But Lenin's successor, Joseph Stalin, found Ukraine's cultural rebirth and its shift away from Russian culture and ideals to be threatening. In 1929, he started arresting thousands of Ukrainian scientists, poets, intellectuals, and artists, claiming that they were part of a secret organization that was plotting against Russia. The Russian Orthodox Church had been opposed to the Ukrainian Church's independence from the start. It formally denounced the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church as well, and Soviet authorities started cracking down on it in 1926. This involved destroying churches and their icons, smashing church bells, arresting religious leaders, and martyring bishops. In the face of all of this, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church abolished itself in 1930, although a smaller group of churches held on until 1936. The Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church didn't start reestablishing itself in Ukraine until the 1980s. Another big factor leading into the Holodomor was Stalin's first five-year plan, which was announced in 1928. This was a plan to modernize and industrialize all of the Soviet Union. 
In terms of agriculture, this would involve collectivizing the farms. Small farms would become part of bigger collectives that were under state control, and they would sell their crops at prices that were set by the state. The idea was that this would make farms more efficient, and that efficiency would allow the Soviet Union to feed a larger population as it industrialized and to export more crops to bring in more revenue to then buy the equipment and material that was needed for that industrialization. Of course, farmers resisted this idea, and there were thousands of uprisings against collectivization all across the agricultural areas of the Soviet Union. Many of the poorest farmers had received the land they were working in a redistribution after the Russian Revolution, and now they were being told to give it up. In general, people did not want to go from controlling their own livelihoods to essentially being employees of state-run farms. The prices set by the state were often lower than what people had been able to sell their surplus for before. So overall, the farms were very slow to collectivize, leading the Communist Party to start a huge push between January and March of 1930. And this included taxing independent farms so heavily that the farmers wound up in debt, and that forced them to join the collective or go bankrupt. Soviet leadership also targeted one particular class of farmers. That was a group known as kulaks, which was a term that had taken on some derisive connotations. Sometimes these people are described as wealthy farmers, but to be clear, they were not what most people would think of as wealthy today. The Soviet government defined kulak farms as ones that brought in an annual income of 300 rubles per person or 1,500 rubles per family, and hired farm workers or owned farm machines. Being able to rent out some of the farm property or having another income besides farming also would fit the definition of kulak. But for comparison... The average industrial worker only made about 300 rubles per year. Authorities didn't really stick strictly to this definition, and a lot of people that were treated as kulaks had even less than that. The Soviet government believed that if there was going to be an organized uprising against collectivization, it was probably going to start with these slightly more affluent peasants. So it branded them as class enemies, claiming that they were exploiting hired workers and taking advantage of their communities. Authorities pursued a policy of liquidating the kulak class, or dekulakization. They arrested about 50,000 people, some of whom were deported or executed. Authorities also confiscated their property and their farm equipment. This was catastrophic. In addition to the loss of labor and production from these farms, many of these people described as kulaks were the most skilled and experienced farmers in the areas where they lived. In a lot of towns and villages, they were also community leaders. They were the people who really helped to hold the community together. So this community resource for knowledge and support just disappeared. Between the forced collectivization and the dekulakization campaign, more than 280,000 peasant households simply vanished from Ukraine between 1930 and 1931. And all of this set the stage for a famine. And we're going to get into that after we pause for a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 
after all of the factors that we talked about before the break, the 1931 harvest was poor across a lot of the Soviet Union. The collectivization and dekulakization process had been really disruptive, and then bad weather made it worse. The collective farms also had not been run particularly efficiently, even though the whole point was to be more efficient. This was in part because that liquidation of the kulak class had involved a lot of loss of knowledge and leadership. Soviet leadership also set quotas for how much grain each community was expected to contribute to the collective. And in many cases, those quotas were just unattainably high. To even come close to meeting them, farming families had to turn over grain that they would normally keep for their own food supply. Although these quotas existed in all of the Soviet Union's agricultural regions, their effects were particularly dramatic in Ukraine, which was expected to contribute about as much grain and other produce as all the rest of the Soviet Union combined. In December of 1931, Joseph Stalin's government started placing more and more pressure onto these communities to meet their quotas. A lot of the enforcement of these regulations was overseen by the State Political Directorate, which is abbreviated from Russian as GPU. This was kind of a combined intelligence and secret police force. In internal memos about this, there is an insistence that the poor harvest and the failure to meet the quotas was the result of a coordinated program of intentional sabotage and theft that was meant to undermine the collectivization process and ruin the harvest and undermine the Soviet Union as a whole. So mass uprisings against collectivization, which involved everything from work stoppages to destructions of machinery to violent revolts, That was interpreted as a conspiracy against Soviet leadership rather than as a response to all of this increasing hardship and instability. This was a really destructive cycle in which people were arrested, deported to Siberia, or sent to a gulag, and then that would spark further uprisings among the people who had known those folks. Uprisings and unrest continued through the 1932 planting and growing season, with farmers struggling to both meet their quotas and just retain enough food to live on. In most cases, it was flatly impossible to do both, or in some cases, to do either. By June of 1932, Ukrainian leaders were writing to Stalin and other Soviet leaders for aid. In August, Stalin wrote to his advisor, Lazar Kaganovich, saying that if they did not improve the situation in Ukraine, they might lose it. Grain quotas were lowered three times in 1932, but really not enough to address this situation. And the quota reductions were also more about trying to keep the system of agriculture running, not about a humanitarian impulse toward the people who were doing that. Even with those reductions, Ukraine was still expected to contribute about 40% of its grain to the state. Punishments for failing to meet the reduced quotas also became a lot harsher, And the other policies that were contributing to the famine, like this continuing push for collectivization and the ongoing liquidation of the Kulak class, none of that changed. A new decree, called the Five Stocks of Grain Decree, went into effect in August of 1932. Under this law, theft of state property was punishable by 10 years in prison or death. And this meant that people who stole food because they were starving could be executed for it, no matter how little food they stole. This applied to everyone, even children. 
It also applied to people who went through fields that had already been harvested to glean anything that was left to save themselves from starvation. More than 50,000 people were charged with violating this decree, and more than 2,000 of them were executed. Although the five stalks of grain decree applied all across the Soviet Union, the vast majority of people who were arrested were from Ukraine because of the truly dire situation there. In the fall of 1932, Soviet leadership started blacklisting towns and villages that failed to meet their grain quotas. Blacklisted towns were banned from receiving food and from buying basic necessities like salt or kerosene. More than a third of the towns in Ukraine were blacklisted. So to sum all this up, Joseph Stalin's policies had created the conditions that sparked the famine, then made the famine worse, and punished its victims for being the victims of famine. At this point, many farmers started trying to leave Ukraine, either to buy food from one of its neighbors or just to relocate entirely in the hope of finding a better life. And of course, Soviet leadership did not want this to happen because Ukraine was the Soviet Union's largest food producer. But instead of taking steps to address the escalating famine in Ukraine, which again was being worsened by unreachable food quotas, Soviet leadership worked to stop Ukrainian farmers from leaving. In October, about 100,000 Communist Party representatives and military personnel were dispatched to Ukraine, as well as to the Northern Caucasus and the Volga Basin, to conduct house-to-house searches to make up for the shortfall in the quotas. During these searches, they confiscated any grain or flour or other food that they found. People started selling whatever they had, wedding rings, household goods, furniture, their tools, just to try to buy back some of their own produce to eat. Calls for aid to Ukraine became increasingly desperate. But in 1932, more than 4 million tons of grain were taken from Ukraine, enough to feed more than 12 million people for a year. Moscow exported more than a million tons of grain to other countries and held enough grain in reserves to feed at least 10 million people. Yet, all over the Soviet Union, people were starving, especially in Ukraine. In December of 1932, still tied to the idea that a huge conspiracy was intentionally undermining agriculture in Ukraine, Soviet authorities started a series of mass arrests of people who were accused of being involved in secret paramilitary organizations. These organizations did exist. They included the Ukrainian Military Organization, or UVO, and the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN. But this alleged involvement was really being used as a justification for mass arrests without actually offering any proof that the arrested person had any ties whatsoever to these organizations. In January of 1933, Pavel Postyashev arrived in Ukraine as Stalin's personal representative and implemented a series of massive purges, removing Ukrainians from positions of leadership and replacing them with Russians. On New Year's Day of 1933, an amnesty was announced for anyone who turned in stolen or hidden grain. The implication was that anyone who didn't turn in any grain was clearly hiding something. The house-to-house searches that had started in October intensified, with anything that could be eaten being confiscated, including seed crops meant to be planted the next season, 
and people's pets. In late January of 1933, Joseph Stalin and Lazar Molotov ordered the Ukrainian borders to be sealed. Efforts had already been underway to keep Ukrainian farmers from leaving, but this measure also kept people from entering Ukraine. So people couldn't leave to buy food. This also kept word of the famine from spreading, and it kept any kind of relief from being brought into Ukraine. An internal passport system was implemented for travel within Ukraine as well, but farmers were not allowed to have them. So in addition to being unable to leave Ukraine to find work or food, they also couldn't try to move to a city or a different rural area where things might not be so dire. Even though other parts of the Soviet Union were also experiencing a famine, Ukraine was the only Soviet republic where these measures were in place. In late January of 1933, the Politburo, which was the Communist Party's supreme policymaking body, resolved that the Ukrainian Communist Party had failed to carry out its duties. Pavel Postyshev was named the new head of the party. He implemented another wave of purges of Ukrainian intellectuals, cultural figures, and party leaders, again replacing the people who were removed from their positions with Russians. Many of those who had been arrested and imprisoned in earlier years were executed. Ukrainian communist leader Mykola Skripnik took his own life in July 1933 rather than go through a show trial connected to all these purges. A month earlier, Ukrainian poet and writer Mykola Kholovy took his own life in protest, feeling that that was the only action left open to him. The deadliest months of the Holodomor were in early 1933. During this time, it is estimated that a 1,000 people were starving to death in Ukraine every single hour. People died of starvation while waiting in line for bread, with those lines often being thousands of people long. As crops grew in the early spring of 1933, people died while trying to eat unripe grain uncooked in the fields. Parents abandoned their children close to cities, hoping that city dwellers with more access to food might take them in. Survivors' accounts are full of just absolutely desperate steps that people took to try to stay alive. Eventually, so many people were dying that wagons were sent house to house to collect the dead. The wagons were drawn by horses, which had to be fed at night and in secret. Otherwise, starving people would understandably mob the stables trying to get the horses' food. Many, many farm animals died of starvation during this period as well because there was no grain to feed them with. And there was also a wave of just appalling and brutal crimes, including cannibalism, committed by people who had reached a point of having to do just anything possible to find something to eat. Throughout the late 1920s and early 1930s, the focus of the mass arrests and purges had mainly been men. That meant that often women were the people trying to hold their families and their communities together as the Holodomor peaked. Survivors of the famine have described women trying to find and store whatever food they could and trying to turn things that would be considered to be inedible, like leather and horse hides and dried leaves and twigs, into food. Women also formed mutual aid organizations and banded together to try to guard communities' food stores or to fight back against food confiscations and arrests. The Soviet government took steps to try to cover up the famine. 
Russian propaganda films depicted Ukraine as a happy and bountiful place as professional journalists and ordinary citizens risked their lives trying to document what was happening. Foreign journalists and dignitaries were allowed into the Soviet Union, but they were given very tightly controlled tours that made it look like everything was under control. A small number of journalists did manage to publish articles on what was really going on. One was Welsh journalist Gareth Jones, who published multiple articles on the famine in 1932 and 1933. The Soviet Union published extensive rebuttals to this reporting, insisting that everything was fine and that reports of a famine were simply anti-Soviet propaganda. Even journalists outside the Soviet Union questioned or dismissed Jones's reports. Walter Durante of the New York Times, for example, stated that he, quote, thought Mr. Jones's judgment was somewhat hasty. Jones was ultimately forbidden from being allowed to re-enter the Soviet Union, and he was murdered in Japanese-occupied Mongolia in 1935. Yeah, there were, there were some other journalists as well who were able to publish accurate accounts. Some of it later, uh, like later in the 1930s. But we'll get more into the aftermath of all of this after another quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel 
for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Holodomor came to an end as crops were harvested in 1933 and more people were allowed to keep enough of that harvest to feed themselves. Accurate death records were not kept during the famine, though, so there are multiple estimates of how many people died. The most commonly cited figures today are about 5 million deaths across the Soviet Union, with about 4 million of those happening in Ukraine. But some estimates are a lot higher, as many as 10 million total deaths, with 7 million of those deaths in Ukraine. It's estimated that more than 10% of the population of Ukraine died in the Holodomor, with a much higher death toll in some communities. This, combined with the intentional arrests and purges of Ukrainian leaders, intellectuals, artists, and cultural figures, to just have a devastating effect on the nation and its identity. In February of 1934, Ukrainian writer Boris Antonenko Davidovich wrote, quote, At the present time, there is no Ukrainian culture. And if there is, it is the corpse of Ukrainian culture because the entire Ukrainian intelligentsia and its culture are in exile. Although the Soviet Union had tried relentlessly to cover up the famine, it was really impossible to keep it completely secret. But in spite of that, there was not really an international response to what was going on at the time. Discussions of the famine in the international community generally framed it as an internal matter for the Soviet Union and not something that called for some sort of international consequences. The United States recognized the Soviet government on November 16, 1933, more than a decade after the Soviet Union was first established. The Soviet Union also became a member of the League of Nations in 1934. Purges and arrests also continued into 1934, including replacing Ukrainian leaders with Russians. Russians were also recruited to repopulate parts of Ukraine that had been most affected by the famine. 
Some of these people were volunteers who returned to Russia after about a year, but this was part of an ongoing effort to transfer more people who were ethnically Russian into Ukraine. The Soviet cover-up of the famine also continued for years. In 1937, there was a census that made it obvious that something terrible had happened in Ukraine. Joseph Stalin suppressed the census and then had the committee that had carried it out executed. Soviet efforts to cover up the famine and to break apart Ukrainian culture and society ended only after Nazi Germany invaded in 1941. At first, many people in Ukraine saw this as a liberation, both because of the horrors they had endured at the hands of the predominantly Russian Soviet leadership during the famine and the ongoing oppression and dismantling of Ukrainian culture. Some people also thought that because Germany and the USSR were enemies, Germany would be on the side of Ukrainian independence. Germany used these perceptions to its own ends, including using inspections of mass graves from the famine to deflect from its own crimes. But, of course, the Nazi invasion brought its own horrific incidents to Ukraine. Nazi policies were the same in Ukraine as they were in any other territory that the Nazis occupied. This included the massacre at Babi Yar that began on September 29, 1941. More than 33,000 Jews were killed in this massacre, and the ravine where it happened was the site of additional massacres and mass burials over the remainder of the war. Somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 Jews, prisoners of war, and Ukrainian nationalists were killed and buried in mass graves there before the war ended. After World War II, the Soviet Union continued to refuse to acknowledge or discuss the famine of 1932 and 1933. Survivors in Ukraine, of course, knew about it, as did Ukrainians living elsewhere. But the Kremlin denied that it had happened for more than 50 years. Soviet research into the famine starting in the 1950s and 60s was meant to try to disprove that it had ever happened and to provide evidence that it had really all been propaganda cooked up by Ukrainian nationalists and bourgeois expatriates. The famine wasn't totally unknown outside the USSR and Ukrainian immigrant communities, though. For example, in 1953, past podcast subject Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term genocide, gave a speech at a New York commemoration of the famine. He also published this speech as an article titled Soviet Genocide in Ukraine. In this, he walked through why he believed Russia's destruction of Ukraine was genocide, incorporating a four-pronged plan that included the destruction of the Ukrainian intelligentsia, the destruction of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the starvation of Ukrainian farmers, and the replacement of Ukrainian population with non-Ukrainians from Russia and elsewhere in the Soviet Union. More accurate, scholarly, and popular articles about the Holodomor began to be published in the early 1980s, right around the 50th anniversary of the famine. Public statements on the subject increased after the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, including people pointing out earlier Soviet efforts to cover up a disaster. The Soviet Union's first official acknowledgement of the famine came in 1987. The Ukrainian Communist Party also formally acknowledged it on December 25, 1987, which was the anniversary of the founding of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. 
More information became available about the Holodomor after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, at which point Ukraine again became an independent nation. Much of the ongoing historical analysis of the Holodomor has taken place in Ukrainian immigrant communities in North America. Harvard University is home to the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, which was founded in 1973 with support from Ukrainian Americans. Alberta, Canada is home to the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium, which was established in 2013. On November 28, 2006, the Ukrainian parliament passed an act defining the Holodomor as an act of genocide. And since then, at least 15 other nations have also formally done the same. Holodomor Remembrance Day is observed in Ukraine and around the world on the fourth Saturday of November. Uh, And that is the Holodomor. Uh, In lieu of listener mail today, we're going to take one last chance to say live streaming event coming up just a couple of days from this podcast coming out. That is March 10th, 2022. Everything you need to know about it is at loopedlive.com. It feels a little weird to end this podcast with that announcement in this particular episode, but uh, we have no other... No other episodes coming out before the live stream is happening. Yeah, sometimes that is just how the calendar works out. Yeah, yeah. So we hope to see folks there. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We are all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. We have our live stream link pinned up at the top of our Facebook and our Twitter. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.